Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 91. Today's guest is Marcello Magabel. Marcello Magabel is a tour guide in the city of Rome, Italy. In today's episode, Marcello takes us through a walking tour of Rome. He discusses the main sites to see, the Vatican, the Colosseum, the Pantheon, Marcello also discusses the hidden spots that many tourists miss. He shares some fascinating history and some stories and the personalities that made Rome the great city it is. We take a nighttime walk through the Trevi Fountain, the Piazza Navona, and the Capo de Fiori. It is a fun episode. If you ever took a trip to Rome or it's on your bucket list to do so one day, this episode is for you. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We got a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. So let's take a walk through Rome with Marcello Magabel. And remember, life is built, not born. Marcello Magabel, welcome to the show. Thank you, uh, Joe uh, Ciccarone. I'm uh, very pleased and happy to be here. We are excited to have you. Marcello, for those who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? Okay, well, I was born in the United States, in Houston, Texas. And at a very young age, my parents decided to move here to Rome. And I was like around 12 years of age when I came. I learned Italian based, well, let's, let's put it this way. I didn't le- know how to speak Italian when I was a small kid because my parents used to take me here to Italy when I was a, a child. But when I started school, I forgot it. That's kind of something strange, like uh, when I started the American school. And then when I came here, I learned it from scratch from the beginning. And through, you know, living here, being in, the, in this country, in this uh, city, I just slowly but inevitably made myself, made my character, and I ultimately ended up getting involved in art, in art history, and still today, well, today I'm a tour guide of Rome. I do tours in Rome and also in the outskirts and outside of Rome too. And it's a passion that I keep on feeding, not only staying within the city itself, but even seeing other sites. And most of all, Rome is such a big city with full of history, full of monuments, full of places that you can't help but over time do connections with other places, other historical contexts, and other histories that all intertwine with the city. So it's it kind of calls, like once you, let's put it this way, once you fall into it, you get pulled to see other realities and other parts of the city that you would never think we're here or never associated with the city of Rome. I want to get into the art where well, you mm-hmm. and I first met each other on that awesome tour you gave to the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to get into Rome, just that magical city. It is so huge and there's so much to see. Maybe we can go through what is a great itinerary from Rome, secret spots, maybe not the, the average tourist sure. doesn't see. But sure. I want to start back all the way from the beginning. How uh-huh. does a kid from Houston, Texas, 
wind up in Rome. Little kid here. <laughs> How do you wind up? Well, a kid from Texas wind up in Rome at age twelve. What's that at story? Age twelve. That's well, my my family had me when they were a little bit later in age. So, in fact, I have a bigger brother, and there's like around twelve years difference between the two of us. So when my dad retired, my mom, being Italian, they decided to check out Italy, try out Italy, and my mom was actually living her younger life in Rome, and so we came to Rome, checked it out, and at the end we we stayed. They decided to stay here. It's actually funny because it was like a try almost. Like they were saying, let's let's try to see how it works, and at the end we just you know found our little spot. We felt well, and we just stayed here and. Initially, it wasn't a choice of mine, but then at the end, it was actually a good. It was a good move. It was a neat move on that. How hard was it at twelve years old? I know that's a very formative time in kids' lives, right? You're almost a teenager. How hard was it to leave your friends from Houston, go to Rome, and restart your whole social? Season? No, that was pretty tough. Now, I've always had an, a, a love for art because one thing is my dad is an art restorer, so he would restore works on paper statues, paintings, works of art, even murals, and, and, and you name it. So I've always had a, a love for art. And when I came to Rome, this it was like a bonanza for that. I mean, it's full of art, especially in the Renaissance onwards, but even ancient art, sculptures, and modern art too. So that was a big, nice move. It was That was very beautiful in that. But moving here, yeah, it was a little bit tough because that's in an age also that you're kind of forming and kids, it can be a little bit difficult, for example, in classroom class. So there was a little bit of a difficult call there for some time, but also because being an outsider to a certain degree, they were like looking at me like, who's this guy from outside from the US? What's, uh, what's going on? And it was a little bit tough, but then I learned, I learned my way through. Even the fact is that when I had to leave my old friends, I lost contact with them. So coming here, first months, I didn't even know how to speak the language. First year was pretty tough. But one thing that my parents did do, kind of sounds a little bit tough now, but in, in hindsight, it was the best thing that they could have done. They sent me to an Italian school. Wow. And of course, my mom helped me with the lessons, the language and everything. So slowly, but inevitably, then I was able to excel on that. And then friends and acquaintances then came as a consequence. So that was, that was good. That was the move there. When you're 12 years old and you just get thrown and you have almost no knowledge of a language like Italian and they throw you in just cold hundred mm-hmm. percent into an Italian school, how long does it take to say, Hey, I'm fluent now? What's that time frame look like? The time frame would look like around two years. Okay. Two years. Well, to say fluent is a big uh, word there. I was at the level that I could understand and ex- express myself. So it's two years on that. And subsequently over time, it gets, uh, I, I have to refine it, make it a little bit better. As you grow, you learn to use certain more sophisticated language in your talk. Now, it's also true I was 12 years old. So maybe I'm a more of a sponge at that age compared sure. to yeah. an older my family and I took our first trip to Italy in 20 years, where, where we met you. You look at our names on our passports or, or our credit card, you start speaking to us in Italian. We have Luca and Franco 
and mm-hmm. my last name's Ciccaroni. It's funny. I went to one store in Rome and I bought some waters. It was like 105 degrees one of the days. Buy waters. And the guy starts talking to me in Italian. He sees my credit card. I give it to him. And I'm like, sorry. And he said, you have this last name. You don't speak. He just gave me the wave. Like, get out of here. <laughs> get out of here. What, what did you do? Yeah, what did you do? So I leave. And then my wife goes, oh, you only got four bottles of water. We needed five. So I had to go uh-huh. back in. And then as soon as I come back in, they all start laughing. They go, ah, oh, Mr. Ciccarone, the Italian <laughs> guy that doesn't speak Italian, come on back. Like, they're all riding me. But it's, it was such, like, I, it was, I don't say embarrassing is a good word, but it was like, it was such a lost opportunity not being able to speak the language. That level of connection there is just, you can connect so fast. And I even see like later on in the trip where I got a couple of very basic phrases down. Hey, may I have this? Thank you very much. One mm-hmm. one person says, very good. Thanks for trying. One guy at the store said, like in English, he goes, very good. Thank you for trying. Just speaking the language is such a gift, isn't it? When you're at that, when you're somewhere else, it's just a way to connect yeah. with the local people. Don't you think? Yeah, it is. It is definitely. And uh, when you can connect with the local people, you can also, they can tell you deeper things that maybe when you don't speak the language, they can't tell you in a sense, not because they don't want to tell you, but where's the opportunity to tell you that topic? Like, where's the best place to get pizza or not, uh, or pasta? And they can give you a little bit more of an insight, definitely. We're at Campo de Fiori and uh, mm-hmm. walk in. I'm big history buff and we'll get into it in the interview. I walked into like this tobacco store and I asked, uh-huh. and I tried to ask in Italian, where was Julius Caesar killed? Like where? Yeah. And they're, like I said, it's so wrong. They're like, they just waved me out there. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> We're, we're too busy. Get out of here. So, we're yeah. too busy. We're, we're, we're serving, uh, you know, water bottles here. Come on. You know? Yeah, get out of here. Julius so, Caesar. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's get into it. So Rome, it's one of my favorite places in the world to go. What makes Rome so special, that its significance in the world and art and history? Tell us a little bit about your version of Rome. Okay. I, I like, whenever I talk about Rome, I always like to talk about the beginning of it, when it was founded. So Rome was founded on the 21st of April of the year 753 BC. And that was when the legendary found, founder of Rome, the first king of Rome also by the name of Romulus, does basically a square in the ground, like defines an area and says, bang, this is the city of Rome. And from that, it's been basically a expansion ever since. The first 250 years, Rome was a monarchy. Rome was actually founded on seven hills. The most famous one is the Palatine Hill, but then you have another six hills around it. And of those six hills, this is something I find always amazing. There's one hill called the Capitoline Hill, which is the hill that gives name, for example, to Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. So this is just already from the way beginning when Rome was founded, how this city influenced not only the neighboring tribes at the time or territories, but even 2,500 years later with the American Revolution and even Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. So that's a fine historical connection there, which is amazing. After that, the last king is thrown out of Rome in around the year 509 B.C. And for 500 years, it's a republic until the fall of the republic and the beginning of the empire, which starts around 27 B.C., And the empire lasts for another 500 years in all. It officially falls in 476 AD. So if you put it all together from when it was first founded in 753 BC, 250 years of the monarchy, 500 years of the Republic and 500 years of the empire, that's 1,250 years pretty much 
of Rome being a power. And the amazing thing about it is that Rome, at the height of its imperial power, so we're looking at the time of the Emperor Hadrian. He's kind of famous in Rome because he built the Pantheon, for example, which is an ancient temple then transformed into a church that is still uh, standing. And you can still see it, you can still visit it. Under Hadrian, Rome had a population of more than 1 million people. And the Roman borders got all the way up into England. So far up that uh, Hadrian's Wall, which is the wall that separates England from Scotland, was built by, uh, by Hadrian. Well, hence, that's why it has the name, Hadrian's Wall. So it just gives you an, an idea of how massive and huge that empire was. That's amazing in itself, because in the West, the only city that was able to reach the size of Rome in the 19th century was considered to be London. Rome had that first place for almost 2,000 years. Then in 476 AD, the Roman Empire of the West falls. She takes a hard, a hard hit. And it gets so bad that they say that the population of Rome went down to 20,000 people or 40,000 people. So you got to imagine 150 AD, more than a million, then around 550, four centuries later, it's really a shadow of its former self, a small fraction of its former self. And ultimately, the Pope is able to consolidate power, get power. And that was the only thing that could keep the people together to a certain degree. And what happens is Rome goes from being ruled by emperors and being ruled by Roman Catholic popes. And that takes us all the way through the 1500s, 1600s, all the way to the year 1870. So that's like a jump of a thousand to 300 years. Let's put it this way, the, the Pope is the man in charge. And in 1870, there's this famous figure by the name of Giuseppe Garibaldi, who around the year 1860, organized with around a thousand men, sails from northern Italy into Sicily, docks off in a little town called Marsala, and he's able to get the south of Italy. And he unites it to a kingdom in the north, that was under the rule of a king called Victor Emmanuel II. And I bring this up because this is for ever since the fall of the Roman Empire, Italy had been broken up into city states. That's what makes Rome so unique because it goes through, once again, these 3,000 years of history. And I, I really simplified it by saying 250 years as a monarchy, 500 years of an empire, but each time period has its own unique moment. And that is, that, that's why when Whenever you walk the city of Rome, you can see a building that dates back to 2,000 years ago. Let's put the example of the Colosseum. And then you can have a building that was built in the 19th century. That's what's really unique. And yeah. it goes through different times and periods on that. Thank you. You basically gave us like 1,500 years of history in about six minutes. And it's not <laughs> easy to do. So I appreciate that. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned is I've never been to a place like Rome where literally you're at the Colosseum and you said it's built 2000 mm -hmm. years ago. Then you walk a couple hundred yards and you're in the Piazza Venezia and you're yes. at the Victoria Manual Monument. Like it's like a modern exactly. day building in the middle of ancient ruins. And then, then you exactly. go to a Renaissance building is a, a block away. Every block has something from an almost a different millennium and they're all just mashed together in one city. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable. 
It is indeed. And I'll tell you this, you have the Victoria Manuel building. The thing amazing about it, you have the Coliseum, Victoria Manuel Monument. And if you look at the monument to the right of it is Palazzo Venezia, Piazza Venezia. And that building was built in the 1400s. So the late uh, medieval times, you know, could be beginning of the Renaissance. And what is amazing about the history there, even if it's a, a history that is generally not very well looked at, is that from that building there of Palazzo Venezia is where Mussolini would give his speeches. So when he would be at the balcony. So what is amazing here is that you have a concentration of so much history all overlapping one another, just a stone throw away from one another. So that's amazing. And then down Via del Corso, which goes from... It's the street that goes from Piazza Venezia all the way down to Piazza del Popolo. You walk the street and you have buildings that still belong to the old aristocracy of Rome. And then at the end of the Via del Corso, you have Piazza del Popolo, which has an obelisk, an ancient Egyptian obelisk, brought here during the Roman Empire. Rome had control over Egypt, was brought during that time here. That's something that really stands out. When you go to Rome, you see Mm -hmm. these ancient Egyptian obelisks. I think you said there's like 13 of them, maybe? There are 13 of them. And there's more there than there are in Egypt because the Romans stole them and brought them up, right? Exactly. For sure, there are more there than the whole world. In the middle of the piazzas. And it's just something you've never seen before, having like you're in this ancient Rome and then you have like an Egyptian obelisk. It's pretty remarkable. And, And they have the hieroglyphics on it too. So you have... Egyptian history that, you know, was transposed here to Rome. So that's amazing. And that's mind boggling. You mentioned the building earlier, the Pantheon. That was the first thing we showed our kids. That is just magic. It looks like you're in a Disney world set. You're in this, you're in a city and you turn the corner and you literally have this perfectly preserved temple from 2000 years ago, just sitting there. Can you speak about the Pantheon? The Pantheon was built under the Emperor Hadrian. And the interesting about it, okay, there was an original, a previous Pantheon that had been built by Marcus Agrippa, which was kind of the right-hand man of Augustus Octavian. In fact, the story goes that, okay, when Augustus Octavian was conquering Egypt, uh, the first emperor, Augustus, the first emperor, like the the nephew of Julius Caesar. Exactly. The nephew of Julius Caesar. Exactly. The famous episode of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. Mark Anthony dies in a battle. Cleopatra commits suicide by having snake bite her. The man who conquers Egypt in that context is Augustus Octavian, along with his right-hand general, Marcus Grippa. So Marcus Grippa became a very powerful figure back then, and he built the first pantheon. Now, this pantheon, this structure was badly damaged in a fire. So what they decided to do is build it scratch from the beginning. That was finished in 125 AD, started under Hadrian's uh, rule in uh, 117, finished in 125, you know, so in a short period of time, nevertheless, with uh, 16 monolith columns. Those are solid columns that form the, the, the Pantheon. And look, you need three people at least to, to just to do the circumference of the column. And Hadrian had it built. And it shows you, it's an interesting time period of Hadrian's reign because some of the most interesting monuments were made in his time. 
just talking, of course, about the Pantheon, but not only, there's also, for example, today it's called St. Angel's Castle. Back then it was the Mausoleum of Hadrian. So one of the mm, structures in Rome. But going back, he was such a humble emperor that he left on the forefront of the Pantheon the name of his predecessor instead of himself who had it uh, would have had it built so very amazing and then so you imagine you're entering to the pantheon and you're walking the footsteps of hadrian and of course after hadrian who knows how many other emperors constantine or even artists and historical figures michelangelo raphael you name them and raphael he's buried in there right raphael he's buried inside there yep yes Yeah. So when you're walking in, you're walking in the footsteps. Then when you pass these, these bronze doors, huge bronze doors, you enter into the inner chamber and then you see these seven enclaves where at the center one is where there's, of course, the altar for mass. But inside where is buried Raphael, also another artist of the 16th, early 17th century, which is Annibale Caracci. And uh, there are also the two tombs of the first two kings of Italy, uh, Vittorio Emanuel II, talking about the wedding cake. That man, he's buried inside the Pantheon. So if your son said he was a little bit, uh, you know, <laughs> megalactic, well, guess what? He got even got a special place in the Pantheon. He got so in the Pantheon. So, yeah. he, got, he really pushed it to, to the extreme there. He went. And, so he wins there. He's on the he's on the right, and then he has you have his son, which is Umberto the first, which is on the left. So two tombs, the tombs of Raphael and the Via uh, Caracci, and and but what is amazing about the place is not only the history of it, not only the the story, but also the volume of it. When you walk in, you the volume takes you. You can't describe it. You have to feel it. Once you feel, it, then you understand. What's going on? There's definitely an energy in that whole city, but especially in a place like that, it's just different. Like you go like, all right, was it worth jumping on a plane flying nine hours? And you're like, you get to the Pantheon in about 20 minutes, you're like, yep, this is a great idea. It just feels different. Let's transfer over. Probably the most famous tourism site in the world is the Colosseum. You have the Colosseum. And one of the things, if you could briefly touch on that and then touch on how after the fall of Rome, they got the Colosseum and literally tore it apart and made the Vatican with it. Basically. Yeah, yeah. So the Colosseum, they began the construction Colosseum under the Emperor Vespasian. And it's around 70 to 80 when the construction began. Now, Vespasian came in power in the year 69 AD, so whatever, around that time. He came in power after the death of Nero, or best We have to kind of go into the details here because in 68 AD, Nero dies. He was uh, the famous emperor, famous for fiddling while Rome burns. And when he dies, the following year has three emperors who come into succession one after the other. So keep this in mind. The emperors were first and foremost generals. So they had the backing of the Roman military, which was something that had very sharp teeth. The following year, 69 AD, had three emperors who came in succession one after the other. In other words, one Joe became emperor, taken out by another Joe, becomes emperor, taken out by another one. And then the fourth guy uh, comes in scene, Vespasian. He's able to consolidate power and he begins the construction of the Colosseum. Story goes is that, okay, where the Colosseum is, there used to be a lake there. So it was 
kind of considered to be the private lake of Nero. So, you know, you have a private lake, you have your, your boat, you go on your lake, you enjoy probably that's what Nero was going on with the image there. So Vespasian began the concept of kind of giving back to the Romans what had been taken away from them, but improved. So he gives back that territory, that area, and builds the Colosseum on it. Now, his son Titus is the one who cuts the red ribbon in the year 80 AD. And story goes that the inauguration party, you could say, lasted for around 100 days. And I've heard different estimates, but I've heard in one case, 5,000 animals were killed in the games or 10,000. Anyways, a hellacious amount of games and shows that were going on. And it was the interesting part about it was that it was used for 450 years. Actually, the last reference of games that they had there, which was a hunting scene or so, was around 523 AD. And the Roman Empire of the West fell in 476. So it's kind of interesting that 50 years after the official part of the Roman Empire, there were still games going on. That goes to the point that it's a structure that was continued to be used even after the fall. And after the fall, what happens is after the last game's held, it was transformed to a fortress for different noble families. And then ultimately it was abandoned. And when it became abandoned, a lot of outcasts, criminals used to hang out there, or bandits. I don't know if you're familiar with the Count of Monte Cristo, the book. And of course, many movies made off of segments of the book. There are some chapters in that book that talk about Rome. And one, in one of those chapters, the Count has a meeting with a bandit in the Colosseum. So the book came out in the first half of the 19th century. So this is just to put in mind that that was a place that was kind of not well seen. You wanted to keep your distance. So in this context, after it was abandoned, they began to dismantle the Colosseum because the Colosseum is made out of solid blocks of travertine, which is a stone that is still mined today, some 20 miles outside of Rome in a town called Tivoli. So, you know, you can have a travertine tabletop or a floor made, and they mine it still from this town. Hence, the idea was in its day, why do we have to go to Tivoli to get our blocks when we have in our backyard in a place like the Colosseum that is even abandoned? Nobody's using it anymore. So let's use it for more better use for it. So they began to use it to build building structures, even some other churches. And of course, St. Peter's Church is the main part for which most of the Colosseum went, uh, went missing, basically. St. Peter's Square, Vatican City, where that sits. How did they pick that site to have the church? What was there to make the Vatican be where the Vatican is? The Vatican, why there? Okay, in the year 64 AD, there was a major fire in Rome, and half of Rome burns down. In fact, Nero was the emperor. That was the moment in which, you know, Nero is fiddling while Rome burns. Now, one thing to mention here, Nero had bought half of Rome when the fire had happened. And that's why, just going back to the story of Vespasian, he gave back to Rome, to the Romans that had been taken away from them because half of Rome had been bought. So nevertheless, uh, when half of Rome burned down, a big part of the population was with no longer, was without a house. Let's play this way. They lost their home. They lost, they lost everything. So Nero... What he does is he brings, he had a circus near the Vatican, near St. Peter's tomb, basically. A circus is like a place where chariot races would have been held. 
what he does is that he invites all of those who had lost their home, their house to stay there. And then he says, you know, guess what? I even found the culprit here who's responsible for what's what happened. It's this guy's called Peter and he has him crucified in the circus. Now, when he passes away, they move his body underneath the dome. This is St. Peter. This is like the this Apostle. Is Peter. Yeah. yeah, the Apostle of the Jews. So Peter. Nero blames the fire of Rome to Saint, on St. Peter. He blames it on the Christians, which yeah. is a community. And hence, in this context, St. Peter gets arrested and taken underneath the dome, basically. The dome is not there, of course, at that time, but that's the spot. In that area, there used to be a cemetery there. What happened is it's a little bit of an elaborate story. They there was a cemetery there. So not only was there the tomb of St. Peter, but there were the tombs of many other people or families, even some very elaborate and very very elite families. What I mean by elite is that the quality of the decorations, because excavations have been held, they found some of the tombs. The quality of the decorations within the tombs are. Super, I don't know how to say superb, refined, very, you, you understand it's a wealthy family. So what happens is they think that he's buried there in that spot. And this is, of course, in the year 64 AD uh, or 67. There's some historians that say 67 when he was uh, crucified. But anyways, crucified, brought there, buried. And in the year 313, so 250 years later, Constantine legalizes Christianity in this context he begins the construction of a church on top of what was considered to be the tomb of St. Peter. So they isolate this small tomb, a very small area. It's kind of as tall as me. It's really, it's like a small altar. And that is considered to be the tomb. What they do is that a first church is built there with an altar uh, at the time of Constantine. And then subsequently, this church was built, was known as the Church of Constantine, and it was completed around 349 AD. That's, you know, the time period. Then 1,200 years later, because they were having problems, or it seems like they had structural problems after 1,000 years of the structure being there, uh, the Pope, uh, which was Julius II, decides to build St. Peter's Church from scratch. So they kind of take out the old church and begin the construction of the new St. Peter's Church. And this church took around 160 years to build. Well, it took around 100 years to build it till the facade, and then another 60 years for the square. By the time of the Pope Alexander VII, and hence this is the year 1667, the last sculpture is put inside of St. Peter's Square under the supervision of Gian Lorenzo Bernini, which is the most important Baroque architect in Rome in, in, in of its day. They say, say the Bernini first, was Michelangelo, then there wasn't someone to his level till Bernini came around, right? He, he's considered to be the big one, yeah. But there are a whole lot of other sculptors, pretty good too, by the way. But the one that has such a renowned and such a fame would be Bernini, yes. Mm. Especially in Rome. It was, of course, Michelangelo, his fame, and then subsequently, like a Bernini. century later, Bernini. The Vatican gets built where they have the Sistine Chapel, and then at some point, like in the what the 1500s, Michelangelo comes in and paints the ceiling when he's younger, the and then, the, then the wall when he's older. Is that yes? Is that, yes. How that works? Okay. Keep, keep always in mind the St. Peter's Church is one structure. Yep. That was being built at the time when Michelangelo came to Rome. The Sistine Chapel was a 
is the would be the private chapel of the Pope. It's the it's a private church technically. It would be that of the Pope, and that had been built in the 1480s. The first time you walk in there, the ceiling's amazing, like the, mm-hmm. like that God touching Adam in the middle. But would you look at the wall, like that Last Judgment picture? That's something that if you appreciate art a little bit, it blows you away. Even like a on a hundred degree day, and like my teenagers were into it. They go, "Whoa, what is that?" That just mm-hmm. captures your attention and it forces you to stare at it for a couple minutes. Yeah. How long did it take to paint the Last Judgment, the wall? How long did that take? That take around four to five years. So the ceiling, which kind of gave a lot of fame to Michelangelo in his day, was uh, was under the Pope Jesus II, and that was in the 1510s, 1508 to 1512. So four years time for the ceiling. Then a quarter of a century later, 25 years later, in the 1540s, Michelangelo is called by a new pope by the name of Paul III of the Farnese family. Secularly, he was known as Alexander Farnese. And he is the one who has Michelangelo paint the Last Judgment. That took around four or five years to do from 1537 to 1541. That's the time period for that. So basically four years for the ceiling, four years for the Last Judgment and 25 years apart. So you can see that Michelangelo matured. Maybe he was in his 30s when he did the ceiling. He's in his 60s, meanwhile, when he's doing The Last Judgment. So uh, you can see kind of a different phase of his life too while yeah, he's the, doing it. The ceiling looks, is a little bit more, I'm happy is a bad word, but a little more like positive energy. Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And then you look Joyful. at the wall, yeah. it looks like the world's about to end. I'm thinking of death, destruction, mayhem. Right, yeah. heaven, hell, like, like, like it, that's someone exactly. like looking over the edge, looking exactly. at the wall. But you look up, you see like energy and positivity above you, and mm-hmm. like death and mayhem in front of you. Right, it's it's exactly pretty cool. How about giving tours? What's an average day in Rome look like for you? What do you do? What's the tour look like? Where do you go? Okay, I do a lot of tours in the in the Vatican area. That's kind of my specialty. But an average day can be like a tour at the Vatican City and then, and then subsequently go to the Colosseum, show, show the Colosseum there. And so doing both Vatican City, Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Church, and the Colosseum with the Colosseum Forum and Palatine Hill. The company, for example, that work very often with is uh, What a Life Tours. These are the setup that we do. Tending to focus either on the Sistine Chapel, the Vatican, and or the Colosseum. Say someone's coming to Rome for the first time or hasn't been there for like 20 years. How many days do you need? And then give us like a maybe a perfect two full day itinerary. Say you get there, you have like half a day, then you have two full days. What would be like your perfect two and a half day itinerary for Rome? It's definitely the Vatican and the Colosseum because those are the main sites. Yeah, let's put it that way. So what I mean by the Vatican, Vatican, Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Church, that whole Vatican museums, that whole structure there. That would be ancient history and also the history of the Roman Catholic Church. And then the other one for sure would be the Colosseum Forum and the Palatine Hill. So these are the two main bulks to see. But outside of that, there's a whole lot of other places to see. For example, I would even put in, okay, of course you have to do a little walk in the center to go do a tour of the piazzas like Piazza Venezia, the Trevi Fountain, the Spanish Steps, going then ultimately to the Pantheon and Piazza Navona and all the other places in between. And uh, I would also add to that a visit to the Galleria 
porque esse é do Porquise Gallery, yeah. which is a concentration of ancient art, but predominantly art uh, of the Renaissance. And they have uh, six sculptures of Gian Lorenzo Bernini. So when Bernini was a young guy, he sculpted his way through and did uh, the piece there. So that's one place I would add. I know someone that worked in the Vatican for like a decade. And before we left, it might give us a hidden spot because you got to see the Borghese Gallery. It, like that is yeah. just... And you go in there, and even if you don't like sculpture, and like, I'm not into this, I'm not into that, it blows you away when you're in there. Like, yeah. it's so spectacular, the Bernini sculptures. Like, they look like they're breathing. It's pretty pre pretty remarkable. And then you mentioned that, like, that Piazza walk. That yeah. walk at night, when you go from, like, the Trevi Fountain to the Pantheon to the Piazza Navona to Campo de Fiori, you bounce from, like, that. they're kind of, like, all in a line, and you kind of end at the Spanish Steps. Like that's mm -hmm. magic. I mean, that is so cool. Could you speak to that little like nighttime walk? The setting is because it's everything is at night. So it's lit by the, by the moon or by the stars. And of course, by the traffic lights and the lights of the city too. Rome gets another color to herself. She literally becomes something different. So what you saw during the day is something different from what you get at night. It gets another energy. And of course, at night, it's even better because at night, you're not melting away in the heat. It's a little you're bit melting in the concrete at yeah. 105 degrees. Yeah, it's just a little bit more enjoyable. If I may say one thing, Joe, another place I think is amazing, also another hidden place is the Capitoline Museums. Okay. Those are pretty cool. Which, is that with uh, the Marcus Aurelius statue out front? One yes, that has, yes, okay. exactly. Never made it in there. Wow, okay. Yeah, that's another one. How about after a long day of tours... When you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? I like to go to Trastevere. It's a section in Rome, which is just below going down river from the Vatican area. There's this area called Trastevere, which is that's where a lot of restaurants are. The people go out at night there. So that's a place that really charges you up, charges me up. I also like to go to the botanical gardens. There, Rome has a botanical garden, which is always near just next to Trastevere. And the reason why I'm mentioning a lot of Trastevere here is because Trastevere, okay, meanwhile, the center of Rome, like the Pantheon area, Via del Corso, Trevi Fountain, that's the more aristocratic area. So big buildings, majestic. Trastevere was always where the people of Rome used to live. So the people, the down-to-earth people, still retains a certain atmosphere and character to it so you feel like you're in old rome and last but not least even going to the beach 20 miles from rome is the city of ostia mm -hmm. which is a beach resort there's also an old section in ostia antica which what pompeii is to like naples ostia antica is to rome there's a section where you can enter in the old houses that existed in the first, second, third centuries AD. What lessons did you learn or take away from when tourism and the world was shut down during COVID-19? Any life lessons you're pulling forward with Well, that? always be prepared, that's for sure, for <laughs> a rainy day, as they say. And luckily, you know, that I was, but so yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty tough and bad. A level of craziness because they even did a lockdown, which at one point, you couldn't even go two kilometers or a kilometer outside of your own house without work reasons, which that was a little, wow. little bit insane, literally insane. It was crazy. This was like, imagine like you cannot leave your house more than half a mile and 
didn't last long, thank God, because that was just completely. Uh, How long did that last? That was like a month. If so I'm for not. a month, you couldn't go more than a half a mile past your home. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. That, that That's, is rough. Oh my gosh. That is rough. And whatever that left me really, I was like completely, I wasn't, I, whatever. I just, I didn't like that at all. I found that encroaching on my, my freedom to breathe. Let me put it that way, because yeah. you need to break away. You need to go somewhere to not necessarily not interact, but even to walk, breathe and everything. So that was, a, that was too much. And in fact, it's been, people have gotten very upset because of that too. So, but anyways. Yeah, no, because so, if you take that basic freedom away of like, you exactly. can't walk outside your house, you could do that for a day or two, but yeah. you do that for weeks on end. That changes the way you think, you act, you associate with others. I mean, that's, that, that, that can be trying. That, that's, that be really rough. That was really rough. And that, that's, uh, I think it, it had a bad effect on many people too. I mean, maybe many don't say or don't show it, but that's, that left a mark, a pretty negative one. So mainly being because, you know, you, you got to get away and sometimes go into nature just to, release and if you're blocked from that you're like you're like you're under house arrest mm -hmm. that's what it is no. No. <laughs> not being a criminal you're under house arrest okay <laughs> no thanks so, for sharing that so um that's uh that's what happened and um no definitely what i took out is uh you gotta you got to find your way to run out at one point, get to leave something open so you can get out because that was, that was one of the toughest experiences I have to say that I kind of went through in that moment because as stated, you know, one case is maybe a person has a family, lives outside of Rome, has his own garden and everything. But if you're in the city itself, it's, and with all these restrictions, that was pretty, that was pretty crazy. That was definitely I, pretty crazy. I have some friends that lived in New York City during the time it got pretty tight in the United States. And they didn't care that they had a 600 square foot apartment because their whole world was work. They go out to dinner every night. They run in Central Park. You know what I mean? Like they're just, oh, they're Yankees games. It's just like New York City's their house almost. Like they, they sleep and shower in their room, but the, the, the majority of their life is outside their apartment building. But when they're mm -hmm. locked in there, it was just a completely different world for them. And, and they still talk about it where like the coolest thing they would do is like, they would go into the hallway of their like complex and then they mm -hmm. would have happy hour with everyone just in their hallway. They would sit yeah. outside like in lawn chairs or something. And they would just so they could talk to somebody because they're just trapped in these little like apartments. It's amazing what, what that, that time frame was. And like you yeah. said, the effects and aftershocks, if that's a good word or bad word, is still slowly unfolding, I think. Don't you think? I mean, yeah. I think that's still. Yeah, I think so too. And I mean, okay, one thing there in the US is that you guys, for example, you don't have mass mandates or anything anymore. Okay. Not anymore, no. Yeah. Here in Rome, technically, if you get the bus system, you still have to wear it, which yeah. doesn't make especially yeah. the heat we're like in venice and or we took the train like to train from rome to venice or, or rome to florence and like everyone's in masks like you're not in masks the whole day but then you go into the train or you're in an out like you're on a bus and you got to put the mask on and it's crazy like it's it's hard yeah. to understand yeah at this point i'm of the idea you know if whenever you have to go you go yeah you know <laughs> it, 
life is not wor- worth living like that. Sorry, but no, <laughs> All, that's the thing. And the most sad thing was that people, okay, a human being expresses himself not only through the eyes, but it's also through the mouth, the facial expressions, mm-hmm. the expression with their hands. That is what a human being is. When you're intentionally blocking one of those expressions, you're, you're only getting half of that person out. And who knows how it has an effect even on, for example, children forming. That's another story that kind of leaves me, you know, kind of taken there, you know, sad, but uh, yeah, it's just it got way too much, you know, way uh, extreme there. Wrapping up here. First off, thank you for sharing that. That's that definitely was a trying time. Appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Hey, be respectful of your time. It's a couple of fun wrap up questions. Yeah. How about, we talked a lot about Rome and history and some huge personalities. If you could spend the day with any historical figure, alive or dead, who would it be? Okay. One would be Raphael, mm-hmm. the Renaissance artist. Because his works are not just simply simple in their design or the, in the concept, but there's a lot of hidden meanings. You could say almost esoteric meanings in some of the works he does. Very intricate in that sense. So I would want to spend a little bit of time with him. Michelangelo, of course, That's uh, those are the two given. I would like even Garibaldi. I think Garibaldi was an interesting figure. The one who united Italy as an interesting life and story he had. And uh, one guy is an architect, which was the rival actually to Bernini which is an architect called Borromini, Francesco Borromini. And uh, I'd like to spend time with him because he, okay, he did a few churches and buildings here in Rome. He did the one on the uh, Piazza Navona, right by the Exactly. Fountain. That's yeah, the yeah. guy. That's uh-huh. the guy. I was going to say exactly Piazza Navona. So Gian Lorenzo Bernini did the fountain. Francesco Borromini did the church of St. Agnes. And uh, I would spend a little bit of time with him too. Isn't is there a story that one of the statues in that fountain that Bernini did, like the statues like leaning away? Yeah. He's doing yeah. it because he he's making fun of his the guy's church, like it's so ugly he doesn't want to look yeah. at it. Exactly. Like, like what is that? What is that junk? And yeah. <laughs> if you look on the church, there's the statue of Saint Agnes, which is facing the opposite direction. Huh. I'm not gonna give I'm not gonna satisfaction. I'm not, I'm not I'm not gonna gonna <laughs> yeah, exactly. So That's you, you so can fun. see that rivalry between the two. It's pretty cool. There's a cool and, quote. You mentioned Raphael. That's somebody that definitely fascinates me. In the mm-hmm. Pantheon, there's a quote, something like when he died. They, there's a little quote saying like when yeah. he died, nature, uh, like when he was okay, alive, When he was born, he, nature felt she was being out, outrun. And when he died, she felt as if a part of her had died with him. Yeah. So he painted nature so good. Nature kind of was jealous of him a little bit because nature felt like it was going to be outdone by him. But when he died, yeah. it felt like she wouldn't matter anymore because no one could capture her like the way he did. Yeah. Like a part of her died. It's like sometimes I think the best way is like sometimes you hate your enemy. You know, you want to, you want to technically, you know, defeat him or so. But then when he's no longer around, you maybe realize, wait a second, maybe I did not become the person or, you know, that, that man or woman that I am. It's thanks to him or, or my enemy that made me into that. So as if a part of me had died because the rival died. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. 
Marcello, if you could have everyone listening yeah. take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would it be? Okay, don't retreat from something that you maybe don't know. In other words, go with it and go sometimes with the flow. Because you might think that, I don't know, for example, going down a certain path or going to visit a certain place, you're not going to be interested in it. You're, nah, forget it. Let me go to some other place. I'm not for it. Go with the flow and do it. And sometimes you might find out you actually, you come out enriched in yourself culturally or in, in general, enriched from that experience. And you might find out that you like it more than what you might have thought. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Last question. Marcello Magbell, if you had to get a quote or mm -hmm. a saying tattooed on your body, uh -huh. what would that quote or motto say? <clears throat> There's one phrase that comes from the ancient times, which is carpe diem, like catch the day or take the day. In other words, whatever comes, take it, live with it, go with it. And maybe see another one would be see the glass half full rather than half empty. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe do another golden rule, do unto others what you would want to be done to you. Seize the day, the glass is half full, and then do unto others as you'd have done unto you. Uh, I think that is about as good as a spot as any to wrap it up. Marcello Magbell, I'd like to thank you for joining us. First off, it was an honor to meet you. Yeah. One of the best parts about traveling, you meet the most interesting people. So excited you agreed to come on the show. Thank you for walking us through Rome, art history, what it's like being a tour guide in one of the most remarkable cities on the planet. If our listeners are looking to find you and maybe your tours, maybe they're taking a tour out in, in Rome sometime soon, where can they mm -hmm. find you? Okay, I do work very often for the company What a Life Tours, uh, which has uh, also a website. But also me personally, I uh, my name is Marcello Mogbell. I also have like an email account, marcello.mogbell at protonmail.com. I do do very often, uh, as I said, tours for the the company What a Life Tours. You can ask like you know, can I have Marcello for the Vatican Coliseum with that? Perfect. What I'll do is I'll put what a, life, a link to what a life tours and I'll include your email that you just gave. I'll leave that in the show notes below. So mm -hmm. uh, if anyone's looking for you or to grab a tour, we did the Vatican to speak to the Vatican and the Sistine Chapel tour. It was awesome. And appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Thank you, Joe. And when are you coming back? Hey, I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm working. I got to convince you. Yeah, I got to convince the wife. It's time to go back, even though we just got, came over. But uh, we do. We'll definitely look you up. And then maybe you could send some gelato over in the, in the meantime. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, Marcello, thank you so much, man. Great to speak with you, buddy. Thank you, Joe. Grazie. Ciao. Ciao. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.